Hello, everybody. This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and today I'm lucky enough to have Alex McCaw on the show. Alex is a pretty extraordinary entrepreneur and developer. Uh, you never got a CS degree, and instead you just taught yourself how to code. You wrote a book on web applications for JavaScript developers while at the same time you're traveling the world. Uh, you created a popular open source library for developers called Spine. You've worked at Twitter and Stripe. You've just got like a crazy long resume. And today you're the founder and CEO of an excellent company called Clearbit. So I'm super excited to have you on. How's it going? Good. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, so to start us off, can you give us an overview of what Clearbit is and how it works? Absolutely. Um, so essentially, we're trying to build the AWS data. So a whole suite of data APIs that you can plug in to your sales marketing teams, give you more context on the kind of on your customers essentially. So we take an email address or a domain name and turn it into a bunch of demographic and firmographic um, data. And then once you know more about your customers, especially at, at a programmatic level, then you can start doing things like automatic lead qualification and a bunch automating sales um, and essentially making your company a bit more efficient. And how long have you been working on Clearbit? So I've been working on Clearbit about two and a half years. And the first half of that, uh, the first six months was just me working on it. Um, and then we raised some money and hired out the team. And today we are uh, just under 20 people. Cool. And I don't know if you guys share revenue or not, but can you share any sort of metrics that can perhaps give listeners some context around where you guys are as a company, like how many customers you have, uh, whether or not you're profitable, etc.? Yeah. Um, so we uh, we don't share specifics, but um, I, I can tell you we have over a thousand customers um, and we'd be one of the biggest, if not the biggest companies that you've covered revenue-wise. And we are profitable. Um, yeah, we make millions of dollars in profit every year. And that's very intentional. Uh, we can we can go further into that if you like. But essentially, we'd like to run the company profitable just to have control over our own destinies. Yeah, I can't wait to get into that stuff. But before that, uh, like I was saying earlier, you've done a whole bunch of stuff in your career. And I want to go back to the very beginning, like literally before you even learned to code and ask, why did you learn to code? Was there something specific that you wanted to build? Or did you just want to become a developer? Or did you think that you wanted to be an entrepreneur and that being able to code would be helpful? I, so I learned to code because the, uh, the school that I was at asked me to make the school website. And I was good at computers at that point, like good at using computers, but I hadn't learned how to code. Um, and so... I also took this as a chance to get out of uh, other extracurricular activities like army training. So I basically made the website instead of doing a, a CCF, uh, which is the con Combined Connect Force. Um, and uh, so I just got a bunch of books on it and uh, taught myself HTML and PHP. And then at, around this time, Actually, Rails came out, and Rails introduced me to Ruby, and then I've just essentially been using Ruby ever since. So how long did it take you to learn to code? And I know it's not a process that 
you just finish. But how long was it before you were able to, let's say, build a website for your school? Hmm. Uh, well, I think I started about uh, 14. I think at the age of uh, 14, started writing HTML. I think by the time I was 15, pretty fluent in it. Um, and uh, then I essentially started doing consulting at school in my free time. And which definitely affected my grades. And uh, it, it got to the point when I was about 17 that uh, it was kind of between grades or uh, consulting and doing this full time. And I decided to leave school at uh, that time um, and joined a startup in London. Essentially, I couldn't juggle both uh, school and uh, all this extracurricular stuff. And I just figured that uh, since I was earning good money, that I could skip out on the whole university uh, side of things because I'd kind of be back at the same spot in a few years' time. Yeah, I mean, it seems to have worked out for you. I kind of had the same pool. I mean, I ended up graduating from university, but the entire time I was there, I was doing contract work as a web developer. And there's something about having one foot in the real world and actually making money that kind of separate you from the other students who are you know, in a sense preparing you know to make that jump and you're kind of like I'm already making money why do I need well, <laughs> to get this degree especially when you realize you're making more money than the teachers <laughs> yeah <laughs> so the reason I like talking about this particular topic is because I think a lot of people listening are perhaps aspiring entrepreneurs they might have ideas that they want to work on and they might just vaguely know that they want to start a company online someday but they're not programmers and obviously, you know, being able to code is a tremendous advantage because it means that you don't have to hire somebody else to code and spend, you know, tens of thousands of dollars doing that. So what steps did you take to learn to code and what path would you recommend to somebody now who wants to learn? Um, well, at the time, there wasn't any coding courses or anything like that. I think nowadays, that's probably the path I'd recommend. Um, there's a bunch of really good free online resources. Um Oh, at the time, the best thing to do was to buy a book. And so I bought a bunch of big uh, O'Reilly books I bought and uh, pragmatic programmer books. Um, there's one called the, the Pickaxe, which is pretty famous in the Ruby world. Um, so I just bought that and just read them. Um, and then the other thing was to set projects for yourself. Um, little open, uh, I, I did a lot of open source back then. Um, I had a little open source library called Juggernaut, uh, which kind of stream updates to the browser uh, before this is before WebSockets. And uh, that got a lot of traction. It got picked up. Um, and that actually helped me get my initial contracts and jobs. Um, so that's the other thing I would recommend open do a bunch of open source work to build up your resume yeah i wanted to say that like i've spent some time teaching friends to code i taught my brother how to code i taught a good friend of mine from college how to code and it was always there's always this dichotomy between reading and actually working on projects where if they spend a lot of time reading then it would be lost on them they would acquire all this information and then forget it whereas if they spent too much time on projects then it's like they would always you know, kind of hack things together using the limited amount of knowledge that they had and, and not progress. But yeah, you've got to, you've got to use it in a practical fashion. 
Yeah, for sure. And I know you spent like a lot of time working on a ton of projects and you're like me, you learned when you were super young, you know, in, in school. So you had uh, presumably a lot of time to just spend on it. Yes. And I was also at a pretty lax school, which really helped, you know, it wasn't a super type A school. So they gave me a lot of um, leeway to do my own thing. Yeah, that helps a ton. And I think, you know, if you're listening and you want to learn how to code, just based on my experiences and the people that I've taught, I've taught two people and another friend who also kind of taught himself. And it took them about six to nine months before they were able to get like a basic job as front end web developers. So, and they were all working pretty much full time. So if you want to learn, it's uh, probably the most important thing you can do is figure out how to clear some time on your calendar and actually dive in full force rather than, you know, kind of dabbling you know, on the weekend. Yeah. And I'm also a strong believer that anyone can learn to code. Um, when I was at Twitter, I was teaching the um, sales team uh, how to code for a little hack project. Um, now, I, I think not everyone is going to be um, like the savant engineer, um, but I think everyone can get to a point where they can produce something uh, practical. And also, I think everyone can get to the point where they can create their own lifestyle business. I totally agree. I mean, there's at the very least, you can get to the point where you understand the basics of code. And then maybe if you hire someone out to build an app for you, you can look over what they're writing and you, you, you kind of get what's going on rather than it all being magic to you. And it doesn't take as long as you might think to get to that very beginning point. And on a related note, there's also kind of a learning curve to entrepreneurship where there's you know this, this dichotomy between reading about it and actually just diving in and starting your own companies and then learning through experience. How did you learn how to be an entrepreneur and the fundamentals of business? Uh, well, by f- failing a lot. <laughs> I've, got, I've had like three or four different uh, lifestyle companies and half of them failed and half of them did fairly well. And so I think it's more trial and uh, error, to be honest. I think it's even more on the practice, practical side of things than actually coding. Um, uh, there's, I haven't really read many books about it that have been particularly useful. There's books on management. There's books on specific things. But um, overall, how to be an entrepreneur, the best way of doing it is uh, to do it. And absolutely the best, do not get a business degree. It is not required at all. No. <laughs> um, no the best way of learn, learning how to create a business is just to start one. And, um, and, and you probably really fail a few times, but uh, it'll be uh, worth it. And it'll certainly be cheaper than a degree. I mean, I've been in the same boat. I've worked on numerous projects that have failed. And probably the worst thing that I did, uh, I think I would have learned much faster if I hadn't done this. But I spent a lot of time working on businesses that I never charged money for, which means that I never really learned any of the lessons that I would have learned otherwise about creating a product that people find valuable, about sales, about that entire pipeline, uh, which is pretty crucial to a lot of businesses. Yeah, don't be afraid to charge money. And uh, there's going to be lots of people out there who are not interested because it's not free, but that's fine. You know, uh, they're not your customers. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we, I, pretty much everything I worked on, I've charged for since day one, but I probably didn't charge enough. <laughs> <laughs> so today you're working on a company called Clearbit, which you described a little bit earlier. What's the story behind how you got started with Clearbit? Well, Clearbit um, was a kind of accumulation of all the 
problems, the data problems I saw at Stripe and Twitter, like the previous two companies that I worked at. And I just, I just noticed there was either the data we needed wasn't there or it was in some terrible format, some terrible API. And I just wanted to build a, um, a company that would solve that. I thought it was a really uh, interesting area. It was also a kind of unsexy area, which is um, what I really like uh, working on. So um, the, the data industry is old. It, it's not uh, very innovative. Um, there's not. There's lots of some players have been around like half a century, and so I just wanted to get into it. I also wanted to build a company that was uh, developer focused, or at least had a really awesome uh, options for developers. Because I worked at Stripe and I saw the uh, the impact and the power that you can have when you um, focus on building a product that is for developers. In the past, I've also used kind of a checklist to evaluate what I want to work on. And it's grown since I started Indie Hackers and learned more about business. But it sounds like you had unsexy problem, developer-focused. Was there anything else on your checklist? Margin. I mean, I would look very closely at the like, business metrics before starting and business model before starting a business. A lot of uh, entrepreneurs jump into businesses um, that sound fun, sound cool, but the margins are terrible. And I would look into that for a clear bit. We, um, I, we used to have, we used to buy some of our data at this point. Our data is a hundred percent or the, the sell price is a hundred percent margin for us. Um, and I think that's very important to look at. You sound like you're speaking from experience. Like you know people who've done these low margin businesses, or you yourself have. Uh... Absolutely. I mean, I per- luckily I, I personally haven't done them because um, most of my businesses have been kind of either like selling some kind of online service, so you're just selling bits and bytes. But certainly there are a bunch of companies in the real world um, that have fixed costs and. You know, the low margin uh, actually strikes one of those. Uh, and uh, it actually makes a much harder business to, to run. Another thing that strikes me about how you came up with the idea for Clearbit is that it was focused uh, initially on a business problem, right? You didn't say, okay, I've got a product I really want to build. Who's going to use it? It came about as a result of a problem that you yourself were experiencing by working at Stripe. Can you go into detail about like what that problem was? Well, part of it was... Um, is this is pretty specific part of it was OFAC compliance is a type of um, a financial compliance compliance that you have to do um, or where you're checking names against watch lists and there's not there's no APIs for this out there um, and uh, and I, w- I was like this is kind of crazy someone should just write the API that all these financial services companies uh, can use rather than all these financial services companies having to create this internally. Um, the other, the other thing I remember was, um, signing up for a Apple iTunes account to sell on the app store. And probably a lot, a lot of your listeners have gone through this and applying for a Dunn's number. And that process was just so excruciating. Um, I wanted, I was like, this should just be Stripe style where, um, a company identifier like an EIN is verified in the background and, uh, and the does number should not be necessary. Um, and those were one of the, two of the main motivations, I think, for starting Clearbit. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting because the problems that you identified were problems that you yourself had that you probably would not have discovered if you, you know, you had never worked at Stripe or you never worked in that industry or you never tried to actually push a mobile app to the app store. And I meet a lot of people who think, okay, well, I don't have any actual problems or solving. What would you say to somebody who says that, who is looking for something to work on, but they're not sure how to go about finding a problem? No, nah, just go and work for a really great company like Stripe and then you'll see all the problems. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think... Uh, I actually, so there's like the startup mantra, which is like scratch your own itch, work on like your own problems. Unless you've worked at a, um, you know, high tech startup or a, a big organization, um, I doubt you'll be, have been exposed to very valuable problems. This is especially the case in the B2B world. Um, and, uh, so I would, I would just go and do that. Just go and work for a, a uh, really great company for a few years and then you just keep your um you know ear to the ground and you'll see some really great uh, problems that need to be solved and then you can go off and do this yeah i feel similarly i've always had this idea notebook that i fill up uh whenever an idea comes to mind and the second i started indie hackers and i was actually making money with the company uh, my idea notebook started filling up like three times faster because there's constantly, you know, processes that I wanted to be faster or more efficient or things that I wanted to do to make money. But, you know, I needed some sort of app or program to kind of grease the wheels to help me out. So I will echo Alex's advice. If you want to come up with an idea, put yourself in a position of a customer, right? Somebody who actually has a lot of money and who could benefit by having problems solved. And it's hard to do that as a consumer because let's face it, there's not that many problems that you can solve for a consumer that will help them make a ton more money. So Clearbit solves a problem that you yourself would experience. Did that end up shortcutting the need for you to talk to potential customers in the beginning? Uh, were your own experiences sufficient for you to, to feel confident in building out your initial solution? Or did you you know do a lot of research? I think there's a certain amount of guesswork at the start, um, taking a stab in the dark and actually making something practical that you can then show to um, customers and get real feedback on. So there's, de- yeah, there's definitely some uh, guesstimation at the start. Once, like at this point though, um, we don't really do that. Most of our uh, new products are directly um, led from feedback from our customers. And uh, there's a very short iteration cycle when we're chatting to customers and improving products. But I think initially, yeah, you ha- you see the problem, you take an educated guess at the solution, um, you spend a month or two building it out. And once you've got a prototype, you go and find your first customer, uh, which for us was bare metrics. And, uh, and, then you, and then you try and sell it to them. Yeah, so there's a lot in there, finding your first customers and iterating on your product based on customer feedback and getting out your initial MVP. And I want to talk about it kind of like in a narrative form. Like, What was the very first thing that you did when you decided to work on Clearbit? Did you like immediately you know, leave Stripe and go start working on it? Or did you start sketching out designs or talking to people? Well, I, I actually left Stripe and had a, a lifestyle company um, called Sourcing for a bit. It would help you find engineers. Um, and I was running this business and it was actually doing pretty well and um, certainly, I'm certainly making an engineer's salary. And then um, I was like, 
I want to do something a bit bigger in my 20s and like early 30s is when I have a bit more energy and a bit more ambition. So I'll work on this new idea, which uh, which has a bit more potential, Clearbit. So I sold the other business. And uh, and, and then so for Clearbit, I, I was thinking to myself, what is the one problem that all of these businesses have? What's the one data problem that we can solve and that's uh, and I came to the conclusion that everyone has a bunch of email addresses that they want to know more about and it's a pretty universal problem we could have worked on some more specific data APIs for more specific use cases but I kind of wanted to build something uh, broad initially uh, so we started out with the email to um, uh, demographic data API. So I built out that API as actually looking at our early metrics uh, in preparation for this uh, podcast. And so it took me about three months to build out the first version of that, and uh, which is a little long, but uh, then I I started uh, trying to sell it, chatting to a bunch of entrepreneur friends that I really had and I knew had this problem. Um, and I, I think in about uh, December or it's like September of 2014, um, sold the first version of uh, of the Clearbit um, to Bear Metrics, and then within three months, I was at three grand MRR. Nice. So, how much of the idea itself when you were first coming up with it? included your initial sales and distribution strategy? Were you thinking, hey, I know all these entrepreneurs running businesses and therefore I'm going to create a product because I know that I can talk to my friends and you know sell it to them? Or was the idea kind of divorced from how are you going to find your first customers? Um, well, for us, the nice thing about being in the uh, data industry is we kind of eat our own dog food. Um, we uh, know a lot of our potential customers because... You know, we are a data company. That's kind of what we do. Um, and that was definitely part of the thinking. However, that advice is not kind of very applicable to many other uh, businesses. Um, so I, I think um, I honestly didn't put that much thought into distribution. I was a little naive at the time. Um, I, at this point, I probably would put more thought into it. Um, just try um, distributing to your existing network. And I had an existing network on Twitter. Um, I had about, I think about 15,000 followers at the time. Um, that was pretty useful getting, uh, started initially. And I've been building that up, um, for a while with knowledge that it would come in useful one day when I was starting my own business. Cool. So also at the beginning, you mentioned you were basically working alone for six months. How alone were you? Did you have friends that you were showing your product to and getting feedback on, or did you have any mentors or was it you locked in your apartment for just six months straight talking to nobody. It was, it was, it was more the latter. I obviously, I went outside, but, uh, it was, it was definitely like a lot of hard work, upfront hard work. Um, not much iteration with customers. I don't know if I'd recommend that if, if it's possible to get, uh, more customer feedback earlier on the, the the earlier the better but for us the product was or for me the product was pretty complex um so it's and, and it's pretty hard to get right um 
you know, quicker than three months. Um, and so that's uh, why I pretty much locked myself away. It's funny because you do, <laughs> you've done so many things that now you give like the opposite advice for, which I think just goes to show how much of entrepreneurship is learning on the job, really. So when did you, you started talking to customers in order to make your first sales? Did, did you learn a lot in those first conversations that ended up, you know, resulting in you going back and revising your product or did the people just start buying immediately? People started buying immediately. They uh, kind of validated my thesis that everyone needed this data. And the feedback I got was just uh, make the better the data better and uh, make the coverage better. So better quality, better coverage, and you know they keep on buying. Uh, and so that was very useful feedback to hear. Um, and uh, so that's what, that's what I focused on, just those two things. Did you notice like a particular type of business that was more amenable to using Clearbit early on? Because I know the advice I give a lot of people is to pick a niche, right? Have a specific idea for what your customer looks like rather than making a product and not knowing who's going to buy it. And then, you know, it's easier to find them online. It's easier to tailor your marketing copy to, to appeal to them or tailor your features to appeal to them. Were there certain types of companies that were using Clearbit early on or was it just everyone? Oh, it's uh, definitely tech companies. Um you know, there's lots of downsides to being in San Francisco, the rent being one of those. But one of the upsides is um, a lot of customers and uh, and a lot of people you can just meet for coffee and uh, persuade to take a chance on you. Um, and uh, so, yeah, just, just focus on tech companies. Like I was actually looking at our paying customers today. And we're doing a breakdown of what kind of businesses they are and um, what kind of technologies they themselves use like how many uh, employees they have. And it's kind of interesting. Um, they're almost all tech companies. Um, they almost all use Google Apps. So that's actually a really good indicator, uh, like lead scoring indicator for us that's, that a company is actually uh, willing to experiment and try new stuff. Nice. It's, it's funny because like it's easy to look at Silicon Valley as this kind of just huge circle of companies just selling each other products and services and buying from each other that are not adopted by companies outside of Silicon Valley to a degree. But Well, th- that's true. I mean, it's it does, uh, true. It's part of the magic. It's like you start off in Silicon Valley, you you prove it out, and you prove it out with the, the best, most like high-tech customers who um, are also pretty patient. And once you've done that, then you break out. Um, and, uh, you, and then you, if you, if you survive Silicon Valley, then you, uh, break out to the rest of the world. So how do you achieve, you know, growth within Silicon Valley and then go on to break out? Like how have you grown clear, but what kind of lessons have you learned about sales and marketing distribution from the early days? Well, in, in Silicon Valley itself, um, I think you can just focus on the building amazing product. You can get away with that for a long time. Uh, certainly, if, if all you want to do is build a lifestyle company, you can probably get away with that f- uh, for a long time, if not forever, if you live in uh, SF or if you come to SF a lot. Um, just because word of mouth uh, will get you your customers. Certainly, that got us our first 100, first 400 customers was word of mouth. And then... Obviously, that only scales so far uh, when you have to bring in more conventional sales and marketing techniques. But 
initially just focus on building something really, really, really awesome uh, that people recommend. What is your primary distribution channel nowadays? Now that word of mouth has kind of run its course, or so it seems. It certainly hasn't run its course, but it certainly uh, has less of a uh, impact further on. And the other thing is, it's very hard to measure. Like there's some crazy algorithm somehow that if you had access to all knowledge, then you could like calculate out how word of mouth is going to increase your business. But uh, you don't have that, and it's and it's kind of. Uh, disconcerting not having control over that um so that's why a lot of businesses uh will delve into more conventional sales and marketing techniques and they want to uh scale the growth a little faster um at at this point um we have a a number of different avenues we have self-service um that still accounts for um a lot uh we uh, have got very good at SEO. Um, so we rank at the top for uh, pretty much all the keywords that we want to. Um, we've, we've got two books that we've written. Um, one of them, which is um, uh, half published, you can find it on the website on um, data-driven sales and marketing. Um, we have a, some great content on the blog. Um, we have a bunch of free products. Um, uh, that those really help. So, uh, if you look at companies uh, like really great companies like Zendesk um, with uh, like low sales and marketing costs, the the reason for that is freemium. Like they, they pretty much all have a freemium model. Um, it's the only way that you achieve scale without uh, scaling your sales team with headcount. Um, and so that's what we've started to do. We've got a bunch of free products. We have. 100,000 people using uh, one of our free products called Connect, just like this Gmail extension. We have a, a free Salesforce extension, uh, that kind of thing. So that's definitely helped us. Yeah, it's uh, you guys are basically trying everything, it sounds like, and seeing what sticks, huh? Yes, yes. Um, we, we're trying everything. Um, we would rather not uh, lean on like conventional sales and having a massive sales team if possible because like i say cost of sale if you, if if you, if, you, if your cost of sales like 80% then um which is the, the cost of sale for a lot of tech companies then that kind of sucks because you're going to have to raise a bunch of money and, and to scale your sales team but for us we're just trying to try all the techniques that keep the cost of sale really low um initially and then we'll de- we'll go back to uh, if that doesn't work, we'll go back to a more conventional model. Another question I'd like to ask people, because I, I think to this date, I've never gotten two people to give me the same definition. Uh, but how would you define marketing? I think that the way that people define it is kind of a result of how they run their business, but it also affects how they run their business. So it's interesting to see uh, what people think. Well, what we are trying to achieve with marketing um, is is essentially becoming a like a thought leader in the business. So when someone, uh, marketing is less about um, harassing people to buying our products. It's more about the impressing them. And they're like, oh, Clearbit clearly has their shit together. And then when, in sometime in the future, when they are making a purchasing decision, uh, then they'll, Clearbit will become top of mind um, for that problem. Um, 
And uh, so, that, so that's what we're trying to achieve with marketing. Um, so we, we do a lot of thought leadership stuff. We, uh, like I said, we have the two books, a bunch of content. Um, and that's, that's been working out pretty well for us. How did you make the transition from the early days or just Alex to the team now and your strategies of, of becoming a thought leader? Because I know as a solo founder, you're pretty much doing just sales. You're emailing people, calling people, talking to them one-on-one and you know, trying to convince them to buy. You know, when did you bring on your first salesperson? When did you first start changing from that model? So um, uh, after the six months of kind of working by myself, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to raise a, f- a friends and family uh, investment round. And that actually ballooned into a real seed round and then a big seed round of three and a half million dollars um, from um, some great investors in the valley. Um, and then we've just ridden that ever since. So as soon as raised that money, um, hired a few people. Most, uh, so we hired an engineer and then someone sales and another one sales. Um, and they were all uh, jack of all trades. So they are, that's probably the best type of hire you want to go for uh, early on. I was, I was extremely lucky to uh, meet some of the people I did and, and, and convince them to join Clearbit. Um, but you don't want, you don't want a classic sales person who's just going to be like, you know, hitting the phone and just, uh, just spamming a lot of people or whatever. You, you want someone a bit more intelligent than that. Who's going to be wearing a lot of different hats, going to be doing a bit of project management, selling, marketing, whatever it takes to get the job done. Yeah, it's almost like your earliest employees are like miniature co-founders in a way. Well, right? absolutely. Yeah, they were, they were totally miniature co-founders. And a lot of them uh, had run businesses before. So that was another like type of person that I was looking for when I was hiring. So how did you evaluate? Because I know a lot of people listening are also in a situation where they're trying to find an actual co-founder. Uh, but if you haven't met someone, it's really difficult. If you haven't worked next to them, it's really difficult to evaluate, okay, is this person going to do a good job? You know, can they really wear all of these hats? Uh, can I work with them? How did you evaluate the people that you were meeting? Well, um, for my co-founders, I just uh, had a trial period. I didn't know them before I started Clearbit, and the the start you know the startup advice is um, you know only team up with someone that you know that you've shared a dorm room with at university or something. Um, for me, it wasn't like that at all. Uh, I, I found some people that were really good that I trusted and that I, I worked with them for, um, I think, two or three weeks in the evenings. And then we took the leap together. And we have a, like a very professional relationship. And for me, that's what's worked much better uh, when it comes to co-founder dynamics. Yeah, that's a really cool way to do it. It reminds me of... Uh my buddy Chris Chen, whose whole philosophy is that you should be a solo founder like you were, and then you kind of have control, and then you can bring people in to work with you uh, kind of in the same way. Yeah, I think I, I, I actually agree with him. I think uh, especially if you want to build a lifestyle company, um, that's the way to do it. So another topic that you mentioned to me uh, a few weeks ago is what you call data-driven marketing and sales. What is data-driven sales and marketing, and how does it compare to, I guess, non-data-driven sales and marketing? 
So, um, yeah, absolutely. So there's, this is kind of one of the concepts that Clever is founded on. Um, and I'll, I'll tackle sales first. So data-driven sales is not about uh, completely automating away your sales team. It's about making them way more efficient. And so making sure that any time they spend is with like pre-qualified, warmed-up leads. And so a lot of that is... Um, it, it, it is like small things like so you've got you've got a bunch of inbounds coming into um, your website signing up first find out more about them like what is their role what is um, their seniority um, like what is the size of their company that kind of stuff I mean maybe initially you're chatting to everyone but you won't be able to scale that and some people you shouldn't be chatting to because you're just wasting your sales team time so starting to do qualification programmatically uh, and then starting to do drip campaigns um, programmatically where you'll send customized drip campaigns uh, that change depending on the role of the person. So for Clearbit, we have lots of different personas from sales, from marketing, from engineering signing up and we uh, can't uh, given them all the same drip emails. And we actually uh, customize these emails and increase conversion by dramatically um, by actually customizing the experience for each person. So for data-driven sales, it's, it's mostly about giving you more context on each interaction, making every interaction more efficient, uh, more intelligent, um, and scaling your sales team programmatically. So what kind of changes do you do you make to these emails that increase conversion rates? Can you me some examples? Yeah, so for the sales team, um, we'll just talk about our Salesforce integration. Uh, sorry, for, for uh, sales reps signing up, we'll just talk about our Salesforce integration. We won't talk, we won't go into any technical detail at all. Uh, for mar- marketers signing up, it'll, it's the same. It's more about marketing. Um, for engineers, we'll actually include a snippet of code um, into uh, this, the, the email. I, I don't understand why every company is not doing this. You know, it raises conversion rates dramatically. Uh, we've seen it time and time again. Segment uh, did this. Segment.com did this um, and customized their drip campaigns and it increased uh, conversions like like crazy amounts. Um, so I think that's like um, sales one hundred and one. But it's crazy how many people don't do this to me. Yeah, it's funny because it's as a like a lot of the people that I talk to on indie hackers when they start their business. There's kind of this constant story that I hear at the beginning where it was like, yeah, it was just me as a solo founder, and I was reaching out to people doing sales, and I would research you know, the person I was talking to and send them like an email based on, you know, all the stuff I found about them online. So it's like you're manually doing this extremely customized thing where you know exactly who you're talking to and what's going to appeal to them. And then you get into the automated stuff where you grow and you start getting more customers. You send the same email to everybody <laughs> effectively and you just lose that whole thing. So it is interesting. that. And then we, and then we started to do some really, really advanced stuff at this point. Um, so, for example, we have our free product. It has credits, um, which uh, people can run out of every month. And so, for example, the first time they run out of credits, we'll actually um, programmatically 
after an hour, we'll, we'll reset their credits and send them an email from our sales team saying, hey, so you ran out of your credits, we just reset your credits, uh, you know, as a, just a, like a good thing to do for them. Um, and then, then you instantly have a uh, warm lead who is, like, any response to, to that goes straight to our sales team. So they can be ultra efficient because they, they've just pleased a customer and they have a warm, qualified lead. Um, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, like we do other things. For example, we, we take our traffic now and we de-anonymize it. We have actually an API for this. It goes from IP address to company information. And so we take our website traffic, we de-anonymize it, we de-dupe it against um, any leads we have in our CRM, so any, any customers already talking to. Um, and then we will actually uh, generate emails for these companies and send them an automated outbound email. So it goes from uh, like a link going in Slack and some company's Slack and then a bunch of their employees hitting our website and then uh, this whole process happens and we send a uh, targeted outbounds to our persona in that company. And so it's, it's kind of like a warmed up cold email, if you see what I mean. And how do you know who to email that company? Because So it is a shot in the dark. Um, for smaller companies, um, it's a little easier. It might even have been the particular person that was on the website. For bigger companies, we just don't do it. So if it's like over a thousand employees, we, we just don't do this. Um, but um, we, we, we pretty much just target 200 to 500 person companies with this uh, approach. And we usually reach out to the head of sales or anyone in sales ops or marketing. Um, and so we've been experimenting with this. It's been working really well for us segment. Uh, have been experimenting with this. It generates $10,000 in um, new, new revenue for segment every day. Um, wow. Like this, this, this is an amazing loop. Um, in fact, we, if you're interested, if your readers or listeners are interested in this, we actually put a whole chapter about this in our book that we're writing. Yeah, it's it's super interesting to me that more people don't do this. Uh, I just talked to Brendan Dunn, who runs DoubleYourFreelancing.com, and he's got a lot of personalization going on there. So he basically teaches people how to be you know freelancers, find their first clients, or charge more from their current clients. And it doesn't matter if you're a developer or a designer. If you're you know on your own or you're part of an agency, if you go to his site, he'll start asking you questions and filter you down and just get you directly to where you need to go. And it just seems so powerful compared to, you know, assuming that everybody is the same person. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is one of the key parts of how, where sales is going is a, a, a customized experience to each customer. Um, so for example, when you go to clearbit.com, we'll change the website dependent on the company that you uh, like, are using in like the IP that you're on essentially. So we'll, we'll change the quotes, we'll change the logos. Um, you know, we, we can customize the, uh, the homepage to quite, to quite a degree. Um, and we can even change it dependent on the technology that your company uses. Um, and then once you sign up, then we have even more information. We know your, uh, your role and seniority. You've given us your email address. Uh, and then, like I mentioned before, we can do the targeted drip campaigns. 
but we can even start changing the interface. And one of the most effective things we did was actually, uh, to your point, when people sign up now, they actually complete a little questionnaire. And we ask them, um, like, what are they trying to achieve? What tools do they use? And then this, that Atlas just customize the rest of the experience. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And, uh, you know, it's something that I'd like to start doing more of. And I think, you know, in the future, I can't imagine a future in which people don't do uh, this kind of stuff. And speaking of the future of companies, I want to talk a little bit about Clearbit because you guys have, like, unlike most people I've talked to, you have actually raised money. Uh, and so you're not really bootstrapped. So I'm going to get your thoughts on bootstrapping versus raising money because I'm starting to see a lot more people, a lot more credence given to the bootstrapping path as opposed to the traditional fundraising series, seed series, series A, series B, etc. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, um, I tend not to be religious about it. Um, I don't think there's a particular right answer. It just really depends on the type of business you want to build. Um, and I would uh, definitely would not discount lifestyle businesses. I think lifestyle businesses are great. Um, like I've had ones in the past, um, and that they've been fantastic. And there's there's some sexiness in the valley to raising money. Don't uh, fall into that trap. You should raise money for the right reasons. Um, well, there's nothing wrong with raising money for, for the right reasons, though. Um, and so we. Yeah, we raised three and a half million at the start, mainly because I knew that I wanted to create a, a, a bigger company. It definitely wasn't going to be a lifestyle company. But if it was going to be a lifestyle company, I, I, I probably would not have raised any money, uh, mostly because it's a little disingenuous because uh, the investors are only going to get a return if um, if you end up being a big company. Um so if you if you do want to create something a bit bigger, then raise some money. But you don't have to keep raising money. Uh, we raised three and a half million initially. We I think burnt through uh, half a million dollars to get to profitability, and now we are adding millions and millions of dollars to the bank account um, every year. So you don't. It's it's. That raising that initial money basically just made things a little easier, a little less stressful. I mean, we I probably could have bootstrapped the, the thing. It would have taken a few more years, um, and the dilution was probably worth it at that point. Uh, at this point, it, we're probably not going to raise any time soon. It just doesn't make sense for us. Yeah, I think it's super interesting that you're a pretty rare example of a company that's raised that much money and has immediately sought out profitability. What went into that decision-making process? Why not uh, you know, continue raising money and delay profitability in, in favor of growing as fast as possible? Um, I think there's a happy medium to be, have, uh, to be had, essentially. Um, I really, really enjoy working on this business. And for me... Like raising another ten mil, twenty mil, and building out a massive team, uh, and and doing things a little quicker has less appeal to me because I would rather take my time about it and um, be a little bit more thoughtful about it. Um, and I also am not convinced that our revenues are tied to the amount of people that we hire at and. 
So I don't think it would be a very um, profitable decision to build up a massive team. Uh, it also increases your chances that all this goes to nothing. Um, and your investors don't really care that much if you fail as part of their model. Uh, they actually want to see you, independent of how good an investor they are, they actually want to see you fail quicker so they don't invest any time, energy, more money into your business or see you succeed in a crazy fashion. Um, and I would just ignore, um, try and ignore or see their motivations for what they are, um, and which is fine. But essentially, the investors are just salespeople. They're selling money. Uh, but this money is a commodity, you know. All money is green. And if you can actually use your customers to uh, do a Series A, for example, then that's a much, I think, better, uh, more fiscally responsible way of building out a business. Yeah, it's funny that you mention uh, investor motivations because I think a problem that a lot of people run into online is they, they start reading advice, they start reading books, and they don't pay enough attention to who the person is that wrote it and what that person, like what world that person inhabits and what their goals and incentives are. So if you're, for example, trying to bootstrap a lifestyle business, you probably don't want to take advice from you know a traditional venture capitalist who's going to give you advice for how you can grow your business as fast as possible or you know blow out and fail as fast as possible uh, and vice versa. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a very important point is when you, you, you get a lot of advice from different people. Uh, it'll be a way more useful advice if you understand people's biases and motivations for that particular advice. Yeah, totally. Because sometimes it seems like someone's giving bad advice and it's actually good advice just for a slightly different goal than what you're trying to do. You know, And there's other advice that sounds good, but it's just bad for you. Right. And, and people have their own biases, uh, for better or for worse. I, I had friends who advised me that I should raise as much money as possible and... Um, if you look at their history, their businesses failed because they didn't raise enough money. So people have biases, and it's, that, that's totally fine. You just have to take that into account in your decision-making matrix. Yeah, it's funny because earlier on when you were talking about uh, the ideas that, the kind of the criteria that you use to decide to work on Clearbit, I was thinking about my own list, you know, and it's like almost entirely based around my own failures in the past. I'm like... I'll never make another product or service that I don't sell from day one. I'll never do something that's B2C. I'll always sell to businesses. I'll never, you know, create a product with low retention rates because that's been like a challenge for me in the past. And Clearbit seems to like naturally skirt around a lot of those issues already, right? Like people probably don't churn that high off of Clearbit because you kind of integrate into your code and then it's there. Like why get rid of it? That's right. So uh, once people are integrated, it's very low churn, especially if someone has a CRM integration, like Salesforce integration, churn is very, uh, is completely neg- negligible. Um, we do see churn of people just wanting um, like one-off purchases of data. And that's, the th- that's the de- one of the downsides of the data industry is that people keep the value uh, when they churn. So it's not great for building a SaaS business, um, but we got around that by just building out a batch product where people who want one-off usage of the product can upload a list and enrich that list and pay for it um, as a one-off. 
and they'll pay more for it. They actually pay five times as much. But people are happy to do that uh, to have less uh, for the convenience. You know, they, they don't want, want to worry about a subscription. And then for your customers that do have ongoing data needs and that will, will want some kind of integration, then you also have uh, options for that. And that's where your recurring revenue comes in. That makes perfect sense. And so uh, we're kind of running short on time here, but I want to close out by talking about the psychology behind being a founder, behind being an entrepreneur and a builder, because you've done like an incredible amount of stuff. And I think it's difficult for a lot of people to find the motivation, you know, or even just the time to work on that much stuff. What is it that drives you and what kind of, you know, productivity hacks do you have to, to help yourself stay motivated and be productive? Yeah. Um, mostly I just wanted to be my own boss, you know, I, uh, that was my main motivation was, was freedom. Um, and I don't think a lot of people realize how easy and or, or maybe not easy, but how possible it is to create their own business. Uh, it's, it's an option and people don't realize that it's an option. Um, and, uh, so, so I, I, I encourage people to, uh, actually, think about it it's potentially like a year from now you could have a lifestyle company uh with money coming in the bank and you wouldn't have to work nine to five you have the freedom to do whatever you want like that's an amazing a lifestyle that you can work towards i think that is a pretty amazing motivation um uh, and then actual founder psychology i i personally find it's better not to get to uh involved in the highs and the lows so when you're building a company there are going to be lots of highs and lots of lows and if uh, my advice is to try not to get too affected by those either one way or another uh, and just try and be fairly pragmatic about the whole thing yeah it's like a ton of highs and lows i have a friend and she's working on a business right now and she hasn't launched yet but the amount of like highs and lows she's had already just like building out the initial product is crazy and it seems pretty par for the course. So I think it's great advice to, to people that something you need to look out for. There's going to be times where you feel super motivated and super inspired and you just want to work all day. And there's going to be times where you're like, what's the point? Why am I even doing this? And if you don't expect that beforehand, uh, you know, I assume a lot of businesses die because their founders get demotivated and, and stop. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's like the, <laughs> the reason, uh, and the, the thing about B2B companies, especially B2B SaaS companies, is that if you just stick around for a, a while, uh, you will make money as uh, you keep iterating, keep improving. It's very hard not to make money. And if you look at companies, great companies like Buffer, for example, they've just iterated and been around for a while. And then you, you start suddenly get these like network effects and the numbers start getting bigger. Um, and the, you know, the ball gets rolling and soon you're making, you know, $10 million and, uh, and it's just because you stuck with it. Yeah, completely. I think that's such, that's why it's so important to actually start trying to sell an actual product or service from, from early on, because, you know, you learn these lessons, you talk to people and they tell you outright why they're not going to buy your thing. And then you can iterate, you know, and if you stick with it for years, then there's no way you're not going to eventually iterate to something that somebody will pay for. Yeah, especially in the B2B SaaS world. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, I think it was great having you on the show, Alex. I think that's an interesting note, uh, interesting thought to leave people with. Can you let us know where we can find out more about you and Clearbit online? 
Yeah, uh, clearbit.com, that's C-L-E-A-R-B-I-T.com. Um, and I also have a personal website, alexmccaw.com, um, which is very uh, neglected. So I, I probably suggest you look at Clearbit. <laughs> All right. Take it easy, Alex. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, you should join me and a whole bunch of other ND hackers and entrepreneurs on the ndhackers.com forum, where we talk about things like how to come up with a good idea and how to find your first paying customers. Also, if you're working on a business or a product of your own, it's a great place to come and get feedback from the community on what you're working on. Again, that's www.ndhackers.com forum. Thanks, and I'll see you guys next time.